Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Unconventional Soldier. A military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome to the Unconventional Soldier podcast. Our guest today is Liz McConaughey, who spent 17 years flying with the RAF Chinook fleet. Age 21, she was the youngest aircrew member to deploy to Iraq and was also the only female crewman on the Chinook wing for four years. She completed two deployments to Iraq, followed by 10 deployments to Helmand Province on Operation Herrick. During her deployments, she survived not only a near-fatal wire strike on board a CH-47, but numerous enemy contacts. Liz is now a published author, and her book, Chinook Crew Check, which she started as a side project during COVID lockdown, is out now, if you can get hold of a copy. So thanks for coming to the pod, Liz, and we always start off with our guest backstory. So why did you join the RAF, and why did you want to be air crew on Chinooks? Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um... So I, I don't come from a forces family at all, although my brother uh, is in the army. You know, we haven't got generations of forces people, uh, certainly in our family. But my brother went to join the army whenever he was uh, 17. And he went up to a place called Palace Barracks back home in Northern Ireland, which I'm sure you two are quite familiar with, um, where the careers yeah. office was. So he went up to do his barb test, which is the entrance test for the army. Um, and I went with him. And while he was in doing the exam, there was a magazine on the table and it had a picture of a helicopter and some guy hanging out the side of the helicopter on what I thought was a rope. So um, I was fascinated by it. And I said to the chap in uniform, I was like, what's this job, this guy in the rope outside the helicopter? And he said, well, first of all, it's not a rope, it's a wire. <laughs> and the job title is helicopter crewman. And that was me. I was just souls. I didn't really know much more about it at the point. I was just like, no, that is the coolest job on the planet. And I want to do that. So made the appropriate inquiries. And had an interview at Palace Barracks and then managed to get sent over to Cromwell for another interview and then back over for like all the medicals and aptitude tests, etc. And uh, and then, yeah, that's how I kind of got in. That's kind of what was the draw, really. At the time when you joined, were all 
sort of trades open to females or were there still certain restrictions? Yeah, so for there was no restrictions for, for the crewman trade, although that said, it was only years later, I was at um, Henlow, the RAF Museum in Henlow, and there's a timeline around the, the hangar in there, and it's actually in 1996 that females were allowed to be crewmen, which wasn't really that long ago when you think about it. I mean, I joined in 2001, so it wasn't that long after. Um, as I wasn't the first female by any stretch uh, on Chinooks, but I was the longest serving in the, uh, and, and I was the only one for uh, four or five years. So, yeah. It's amazing how much it's changed. And I'm giving away Kevin Mai's age here. When we joined up in the mid 80s, uh, Kevin's a bit earlier, actually. But um, whoa, you, know, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you couldn't be gay. You were kicked out for any hint of you were found out to be gay. Yeah. Stripped of your medals. Female service women were kicked out for being pregnant. Yeah. So Kevin and I saw a hell of a change over that, that period that we were in to, to what it should be and what it is today. And it's still today. Yeah, I mean, still. I'll say I was the only one for a couple of years at ODM. And then I think at our heyday, we had mm-hmm. five female crewmen. I remember having to queue for the toilet one day at work. I was like, wow, this is novel. <laughs> and, uh, and, and now I've only heard recently that actually, so Seven Squadron is the Chinook uh, Special Forces Squadron at Odium uh, that do a lot of the work with the Shakies and the Blades from Hereford. And uh, it's, it was kind of an unwritten rule. It was never written in black and white that females couldn't go to Seven Squadron. But certainly in my time at Odium, it was never really the sort of the done thing, I guess. And uh, and there's two females going there at the minute. They're on track to go over there, and that'll be absolutely you know groundbreaking for. Uh, a female pilot and a female crewman to go over and work there. So people, you know, they're still pushing through these barriers and, and it is still moving forward, which is great to hear. And two weeks ago, you had the first female soldier yeah. pass P yeah. Company, which is the second female to pass P Company because a, a female officer in the Royal Artillery did it about two years ago. So all these boundaries are gradually being pushed and uh, breaking down or breaking up through the glass ceiling. And what I also i am been really pleased about is although those stories are making it into the media, those girls and certainly myself throughout my career never wanted to be singled out for being special because if somebody says to you that oh my god isn't it great she can do that job despite the fact she's a female it's almost like saying we weren't capable of doing it in the first place so I just always say it's the best person for the job you know and there are you know there are females out there who can cut the mustard um but there'd be nothing worse than them having someone make a big song and dance about it and I'm sure that's probably what they don't want either. Did you feel that sort of pressure on yourself at any time you felt there's a bit of song and dance and you're sort of always being wheeled out when dignitaries are visiting or did that not It did happen? happen a little bit. However, I was really lucky with my regional accent. I could always play the little jugger card and say, I don't want to be any part of this because I'm from Northern Ireland. Um, we had an all-female fly past when the uh, Women's Memorial was unveiled in Whitehall and uh, we couldn't even scrub together a crew of four females on the wing at the time. So myself and another girl called Hannah, who was the pilot, and then we had... Uh, a guy called Dave in the in the cockpit who was Davina for the day, and Glenn he was Glenda for the day. So <laughs> we just made up the names for the purposes of the BBC commentary, but it was actually just two men and two women. <laughs> so yeah, it was, um, but he did get it quite a lot. It was always a bit, a bit of a focus, but managed to hide in the shadows quite a bit. Well, I'm surprised at that as well. You knew what you wanted to do right at the beginning. You won't be in the Chinooks, and you had a career in that because most of us who joined the army. Probably haven't got a clue when we first join what we're going to end up doing because we just join, go through the sausage factory and turn out the other end and then options are thrown at you. Yeah, well, through our training system, because if you joined in old money when I joined, it was Loadmaster was the whole name of the branch, brackets crewman. And you could then find yourself on fixed wing aircraft or rotary aircraft. So 
whenever as you go through training you do basic training which is the classic you know running around at Cranwell with a pine pole on your shoulder and you come out of that as a sergeant which is already pretty mental when you think about it you've been in the air force I've been in the air force for three months I was 19 years old and I'm now in the sergeant's mess with wearing a sergeant's rank tie. I was like, I have no idea what is going on. And we used to get called plastic sergeants, really, you know, quite fairly, because <laughs> we didn't have a clue, some of us. But uh, but you learn pretty quickly. But then whenever you go through, like, sort of the basic loadmaster training, which is still at Cranwell, like Ground School, you get given a dream sheet. And on the dream sheet, you can put fixed or rotary. So a few of the guys wanted to go fixed wing, which always struck me as like, why? Why would you? You know, I was just always hooked on helicopters. And um, and they were like, I mean, to be fair, who was the fool? Because I spent my entire career living in tents in deserts and in full three plane. Most of them were checked in, like the classic RAF thing, checked into hotels all around the world for their 17-year careers. So maybe more for me. But yeah, so you fill your dream, dream sheet in, and I always wanted rotary. And then at the end of Shawbury, which is our basic helicopter um, training, you get given another dream sheet, and you can write down which helicopter type you want to go on. Um, but for me, the reason why it was Chinook was if you're going to do a job, I mean, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly, right? So if you're going to do a job, you want to go on the biggest helicopter that can fit the most inside and the most underneath. And, and that's a Chinook. You know, we've got three hooks instead of one. And you can fit, you know, two landers inside there and 40 troops. I mean, at an absolute push, you can get 60 troops in there. So, you know, if you're going to be challenged at work, then why not pick the best, the best one? I've been in there with 60. It's not much fun. <laughs> I mean, in the heyday in Herrick, when it was pretty tasty operations, we used to have to take the Gurkhas in and they would be stood up in the cabin with ropes across the top of the cabin for them to hold on to. And uh, yeah, we would just jam them in. And it was like, stop, just stop counting at 40. <laughs> Don't keep anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's quite... You get, get more Gurkhas in the smaller blokes, aren't yeah. they? <laughs> you can amazed what you can fit in there, though. I used to look at stuff outside the ramp you know, you get to some of the fobs in Herrick and the ramp would pick it down and you'd just be like shaking your head going, there is not a hope that, that all of that out there is going to fit in here. And it's amazing what you can get in <laughs> when you try. Fewer restrictions in the wartime environment as well, I imagine, or do they still pay lip service to sort of peacetime flying? No, it's really good, actually. It is, you know, operations and exercises, the huge uh, umbrella and the huge caveat that we can use out there. So, um, which is good because it gives you the chance to actually get your job done and, know the rules because it's that class you know it's like passing your driving test you actually don't sometimes learn to drive until you're on your own and you've got no one else to ask the question off mm-hmm. and when you're suddenly faced with like it you need to know how the CAG of the aircraft works and how the actual how you know the restraints so that actually if you have a heavy landing which is quite likely in Afghanistan you need to make sure that actually you are doing your job properly so you really earn your salt um but you need to know the rules and how to bend them but bend them safely so yeah it's it's really it is good so coming from Northern Ireland, what were the issues with you joining the forces? And you've mentioned, obviously, you've used it to get away from some of the dignitaries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I didn't have that many issues joining because and the, I, I think there's a real different perception in Northern Ireland between people who are in the army and the other forces. And it's been like that my entire career. I mean, I was still to be very careful when I went home. We would always get a security brief and then we'd go back, you know, before we went home and leave or as soon as you got back home, you'd have to report in somewhere and get a security brief. But um, I never felt particularly under threat. And years and years into my career, um, I was in Herrick and uh, the RAF regiment got given freedom of the borough back home in my local town. And there was a big parade. And uh, my mom and dad went along and met, whoever the chief of the air staff was at the time. 
And uh, he said, oh, and my mum said to him, oh, you must know our Elizabeth. She's in the RAF, classic mother. Like, And uh, <laughs> he said, oh, no, where's your daughter today? And she said, oh, she's in Afghanistan. So whatever happened, the local councillor got hold of this story and decided that wouldn't it make great PR for him, mostly, um, that uh, I was given freedom of the borough when I got back. So I came back from Afghanistan and mum's like, yes, we're going to Stormont, which is big government buildings back home, in my number ones feeling very uncomfortable in my number ones driving through, uh, you know, back home, driving up towards Belfast. But it, it is actually really safe, you know, in that respect, I think. Um, but my brother, again, who was in the army, would never have worn his uniform off camp or, yeah. you know, been very careful going in and out of Aldergrove. And you just think, essentially, when we're all away, we all wear the same uniform now. You know, I was an MTP most of my career as a, a crewman, not RAF Blues. But they're just that perception is just so different back home. I've never heard that before. That's interesting. Mm, never. Well, I think because that's that's because we our memories are from the eighties. That's, that's probably exactly it. You know, Kev, I think if there's there's that hangover really of you know British soldiers yeah. walking the streets, very likely. Yeah, yeah. So our memories are totally different, and we don't go across there enough to see the the changes and normalisation. Yeah, and it has changed. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still, yeah, yeah. There are still you know cells of people over there you wouldn't want to bump into around the back of the the shopping centre, but um, Castle Court, I think yeah it's called. But this you know it has changed a lot. Belfast is a phenomenal place now, yeah. and back even from when I left, and I left in two thousand and one. But there are you know high rise glass buildings which you just didn't get back in the nineties. In fact, you know from the eighties onwards, you just didn't get high rise buildings with glass in them because it was just too much of a risk. Whereas it's very cosmopolitan now and very trendy. These are well, four years ago. I went across there and I went, I went out of drinking the Europa, yeah. which was the most bombed oh, hotel yeah. in Europe at one stage. Yeah. And now it's, I mean, stunning, yeah. absolutely stunning inside. Now, I just wanted to go there because I, want, I never had a chance to go there before and I just wanted to go in there. It was yeah. great, absolutely. Did you go fantastic. to the Crown Bar across the road? Uh, that's, a, no. that's that Victorian yeah. one, isn't it? With all the little, it's a beautiful old fashioned yeah, bar. That. No, I never no, got it's there. It's definitely worth a visit next time, definitely. Yeah, that's really nice. So, Liz, what was basic and air crew training like for you? So, I went through in 2001, and I say I was only 19. I joined on my 19th birthday. Um, and I'm going to do that classic thing where I go, it's not like this now. It's far too, it's far easier now. But back in our day, um, we would do a lot of sort of, because we were coming out as sergeants, we had to do a lot of leadership tasks. So, our basic training was very much focused on, I mean, the basic core skills of like how to make your bed space and marching and drill and all those kind of things and I was quite lucky that one of my best mates who I joined up with was ex-RAF regiment so I mean I didn't know anything about drill could not march for toffee and he kind of you know spent the most of the weekends helping me out with that um, and the same you know you learn all the rank structure and all that kind of stuff and again at the beginning the RAF just have stripes it's just one more stripe and more and one more stripe and one more stripe for bigger officers so I just saluted everything I think including the corporal and the main gate at the start I just had no idea what was going on um, so you kind of learn all that and then a lot of the leadership training that you do because you are coming out as a sergeant is done on exercises so you would go up to Otterburn and do lots of running around there, you know, with a, you to have a lead, was, it was your turn to have a lead, so you'd be in charge of the rest of your troop, and it would be like, there's a Hercules coming in in 45 minutes at this grid, and you've got to get everyone there, and build your pine pole into like a tripod, and that kind of thing, so it was all that sort of stuff, and then um, at the very end, you get, you all get stood in a big circle, this is after the three months of basic training, it's called Black Tuesday, and essentially, if they call your name out, you turn around and you salute, and you go back to your bed space because you've been recoursed. 
And if they don't call your name out, then you've got through. And I genuinely could not believe it when they didn't call my name out and I got through. <laughs> so, yeah. And then it's, uh, it's a stay at Cranwell for a bit more basic training uh, on, on Loadmaster stuff and then off to Shawbrink and eventually wherever your front line is. So I take it you're doing you're doing a lot of technical stuff like, you know, how to strap down vehicles that go in the Chinook, load distribution, quite, quite a bit of technical stuff that as well. That comes when you get to the OCF. The OCF is an operational conversion flight or operational conversion unit, it's called now. And essentially that's when you get to your aircraft type. So you get converted onto that aircraft. So we only learn all those skills when you get to the Chinook front line because there's no point in them teaching everybody how to put a vehicle inside a helicopter if half the course are going to go to Puma, for example. So most of the stuff up until that point is things like like laws of the air, rules of the air, um, stuff about principles of flight, uh, radio communications, CFG and weight and balance calculations, which can, are the same on a, a fixed wing aircraft that you go on holiday on and they're exactly the same in a helicopter. So it's kind of and map reading and navigation and all that kind of stuff. So it's more those kind of skills and a skill that we as air crew refer to quite a lot, which is um, crew resource management, which is essentially learning that if there's four of you in an aircraft, four of you as a crew, you can't, as the pilot, do everything. So it's how he offloads the tasks to make the mission work to the rest of the crew, which sounds really obvious whenever you're talking about it now, but actually they're so used to, because the pilots come through basic training on helicopters and fly as a single pilot. So they're used to having to do the radios, do the maps, clear the tail themselves on the little squirrel helicopter. So suddenly they just go into another landing site and they don't offload that stuff to, to the crewmen. So it's kind of learning to get them to offload a little bit and for us to offer the help and, and kind of like all pitch in together for one big mission goal. Cruise loss management as well is also about how your rest period and stuff like because you can only fly so many hours in a 24-hour period and so many hours in a week. Is that, is that yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah. and you always have well? to have 10 hours off, eight hours for sleep within that period for busy safety because out in Afghanistan that would burn up pretty quickly and it was like eat, sleep, fly, repeat. Mm -hmm. So you'd literally go to bed, head would touch the pillow, back up again, back to the aircraft. And yeah, we had, uh, I think the cap in Afghanistan was 10 hours flying in a day, but you could get that extended um, by the, the data commander to 12 hours and then extended again. And I think the longest day I did was 16 hours and at 16 hours just being shaken to death on the back of that machine. <laughs> but that was quite I mean, physically and mentally, that must be quite exhausting. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 45 degrees out there, like kind of average in the, in the summer. And you're obviously wearing body armor and, uh, and your flying helmet. And then if you're doing a long day, you're doing day and night. So you put your MVGs on and have your counterweight balance. So it's it's a pretty brutal job on the body, I've got to say. <laughs> so you were the only woman on your flight for four years. What was that like? Did you feel like you were breaking the glass ceiling? No, not at all, because as I say, there was females before me. Um, I wasn't the first females on Chinook. Whenever I arrived, though, the female that was there was just being, she was just leaving to go to a different trade. So, yeah, it was just me initially. And um, I never got singled out, never got made to feel anything special or, you know, picked on or, you know, it was really, I just felt like one of the lads and the lads would look after me like big brothers, really. Or it's like having 60 uncles at one point. Um, even on a night out, we used to call it the ring of steel because if I was out trying to pull, I'd just have like 10 lads around me and couldn't even catch a glance of anyone else. I'm like, oh, bad. <laughs> but uh, the only thing was I couldn't get away with anything because being Northern Irish and being blonde and being the only female crewman, like if I parked badly on camp somewhere, somebody like, oh, seen that little blonde crewman can't park for toffee. Or if I was 
drunk at the bar the night before or whatever you know I was just so easily identifiable that I couldn't get away with much <laughs> so I had to be squeaky clean for a couple of years but um yeah never got singled out it was really good and I think the first I think, I think that I'd recommend anyone in the for you know any female listening to this forces is an awesome career and it doesn't matter if you're female or male and even if you're going into quite a unique trade within that mm. everyone's just got the same goal and as long as you're good at your job and you're credible and you're a team player then you're part of the team no matter what you look like I totally agree I, I think the army sorry the forces in general all three services don't get the credit for what they've done over the last 25 years but now you have women serving in the infantry Absolutely. so in a, yeah. in a space of 16 years it's completely about to and the well, I think we spoke we spoke to Adam about this as well because um, on Herrick there was a stage where you had women medics then going into the patrols yeah. on the ground, and that was unusual. But after a while, that just became the norm. The medic would turn up regardless whether they were male or female, and would just be absorbed into the patrol and off there. Would... Absolutely, and I noticed that throughout my career. So I did ten Herricks a lot, mm. and I remember from my first couple of Herricks seeing a female out there. I mean, seeing a female at Camp Bastion was pretty much unheard of. I have to admit, it was a bit like, you know, like 100 meerkats when you'd walk into the dining hall. Like, all the every bloke in the entire room would turn their head and you were really aware of it. But, you know, the first couple of years, it was, you know, there was very few females. And then towards the end of the campaign, certainly from the middle of the campaign onwards, you know, 07, 08 onwards, every time we lifted, you know, there'd be female medics, like you say, dog handlers. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And they became less and, you know, it was less and less strange to see these females and I always had so much respect for them because yes although you know I did quite a blokey job I guess and don't get me wrong humping and dumping most of you know two powers kit on the back of the aircraft and whatnot um it was a bit it was quite a physical job but those girls had to go out the back of the ramp with the bergen on the same size as everybody else's you know they didn't get a bergen full of feathers they were carrying exactly the same kit as all the rest of the lads and they were expected to keep up and just get on with it and I you know I had so much yeah. respect for those girls going out to do that so how soon did you deploy to Iraq on your first op tour then, Liz? So I got to the squadron in February 2003 and went straight out to Iraq that summer. So I was out in Iraq by the August and I went out to Iraq when I was still limited combat ready. Um, so com- basic combat ready is essentially where you are allowed to get your L plates off completely and you don't have to fly with training staff anymore. But when you hit the squadron, you get given your like limited combat status and you still have to fly with the training staff. You kind of learn all your skills, like frontline skills. So although on the OCF, you get taught how to operate the Chinook and fit stuff in and, and all that kind of side of things, the operational side of it, sort of the the um, the combat ready side of it is done on the squadrons. And that is how, again, you kind of learn to cut corners, but do it safely, do it quicker, do it, you know, now that you're under fire, that kind of thing. But whenever I went to Iraq, I was still limited combat ready. And um and actually, I had my medals out today. I was polished them off um, for remembrance this weekend. And my Iraq medal has AC McConaughey on it, which is Air Cadet or Air Crew Cadet, uh, because I'm still an Air Crew Cadet technically on paper because you don't get your substantive rank. Um, all, this is all a paperwork kind of exercise, but you don't hold the substantive rank of sergeant until you're combat ready. So I was uh, myself and only one other guy ever had that medal, which is quite weird. <laughs> but um yeah, so it was like I'd only been in the squadron a couple of months and I'm straight out to Iraq and it was just such a baptism of fire. It was like, right, here you go, you know, go and learn at the deep end. If that's your first tour, how did you find it? 
So the, the thing with Iraq was I, whenever I got there, the war fighting side had been done. So we were going out there to routine tasking, which is essentially just moving a lot of the troops and, and kit and stuff around the theater. Um, and Eagle VCPs was the thing we did quite a lot with the RAF Reg, and that's landing on roads, chucking the RAF Regiment guys, whatever infantry, and it was out the back of the aircraft. They'd go and search vehicles and jump back on board again a few minutes later. So it was fairly benign, really. Um, the heat was the first thing that hit me because obviously being a, a little Northern Irish girl, it was just mental the first couple of days. And one of our engineers went nearly went down with heat stroke. So I remember thinking, you know, this isn't Kansas anymore. This this could kill you. Um, but I always referred throughout my entire career to normality bars. And in Iraq, you know, we would go into places like Basra Palace or the Shalar Hotel, which were along the river. And those sites had been mortared like the week before. And I remember thinking, oh, God, that's dangerous. This place is mortared like last week. And then the next time I'd go in, um, you know, it'd be mortared the day before. And or, and then towards the end of the tour, maybe it'd be mortared that morning and you'd still go in. But it was always safe. It was always cleared and you guys would get, would get the green light to go in. And and even at the start of Herrick, that was very similar. Herrick was quite benign whenever we got there in 05, 06. And we only, only were operating on a few bases in Herrick uh, to begin with um, around Southern Helmand. And there wasn't that many British troops on the ground, so it was still really benign. But whenever it did start to go kinetic and did start to ramp up, your normality bar goes up with that. So suddenly, you know, you're going into sites that have been RPG'd 20 minutes before. Then you're going into sites that are, you know, taking incoming fire and then you get cleared in. And then the next thing you're going in under a hail of bullets or you're on the landing site getting RPG'd. And it becomes really normal. And I think that's the takeaway. I look back now and think how normal that close danger was for all of us I think and you know you just didn't flinch because you were just zoned out to it by the end like that comes with experience doesn't it you know which you can only get by living that life yeah yeah absolutely and I was lucky in that respect that I feel like I got very much you know taken into it at baby steps whereas some of the crewmen that joined the fleet in sort of 06 07 had you know done the same journey as me through basic training and then Shawbury and then before they knew it six months later they're out in Herrick and they're not only getting shot at on every landing site, uh, you know, not just bullets, but RPGs, mortars. They are also picking up, you know, not just, you know, injured bodies, but dead bodies and bits of bodies on the Mert stuff. So, and that was pretty brutal for the, the middle chunk of Herrick. The Mert was like scenes of mash some days. And those guys just were straight into the deep end. And some of these lads were only like 22, 23. And I always, you know, look at that particular era of people and, and know that it's left lasting effects on them. Prior to going down to Iraq, you're sort of doing all your, you're still sort of in a training pipeline for your basic and trade training, if, that, if I can call it that. But did you do any sort of role specific training for theatre? Like when you're in the army, for example, you'll do pre deployment yeah, training do PDT, and that can be like yeah, three, four months. Exactly the same. We do all the PDT that essentially the army would do, maybe a bit less running around in the field shooting each other. <laughs> but we have to do all the weapon <laughs> skill, like weapon handling skills, because we have to train as if we could go down any moment. So don't get me wrong, the RAF are never infantry soldiers. And if you've ever seen the shamble, like <laughs> PDT that we do, it's uh, it's more like, yeah, it's um, more Private Benjamin than Saber Private Ryan. But um, we do that. We also have to do um, the dunker training, which is part of our, our sort of training as we go through in case you have to you ditch in water, um, which is down at Yeovil, which is where you get strapped to the helicopter and it goes under the water upside down and in the dark and you have to escape. I'm a bit of a water baby and I do love it, but it, some people just hate it and you just see people trembling and because it sort of pauses before it drops. So you kind of go up to like your chest level and you're sat there 
and then it just goes. So if you haven't caught your breath at just the right time, then you're, you've absolutely stuffed it. But you have to wait until everyone else is out of the helicopter before you, because we as the crewmen kind of wait to go out last. So you've got about six or seven guys who have to punch the windows through and then swim out. And if they get confused or they get stuck, then you're just sat there holding your breath, just hoping for the best. So we do that. And then we also do, I think, with the level C course, which is we have a nickname that's called the A course, but it's essentially the escape and evasion course that people maybe listening to this would have seen on SAS, Who Dares Wins. It's the old, you know, you get your hood on, you're basically going on the run for a week. Then you get caught by the enemy, uh, the hunter force, and then you get interrogated. And it's probably the hardest course I've ever done. But, you know, we have to do it so that if we're prepped, that I'd much rather have done the training and if it ever have ever happened in Afghanistan, know what I was doing and be prepared for it, then, you know, go into a theatre like Afghanistan without having that kind of, you know, mental mindset that I, I know what to do if, it, if the worst happens. But it's a pretty hard course. And then in terms of flying training, we would go away to somewhere that was hot and dusty. So in the old days, it was Morocco. Uh, we spent a couple of uh, years going to Jordan and then luckily we went to California the last couple of years, which I must admit I could never complain about because in my essay, my support helicopter force, completely different to the fixed wing guys. Like I mentioned earlier, there was no hotels in my career, <laughs> very little, but, um, <laughs> but California was not bad. You know, we got to go to California and stay on, a, on an airbase out there and do some dust training because we had to learn to operate the aircraft in dust and in mountains as well. It's interesting you mentioned about escape and evasion training because I think that became mandatory for all RAF aircrew after the Gulf War in 91, I think, yeah. because they found out that um, a lot of the aircrew weren't properly prepared for when they were captured. Is, is, did that come out in your sort of briefing? Yeah, yeah. It, Liz, oh, that just went down and, yeah, they, it was quite famous, a lot of the video footage actually of them and how they, whenever they were doing their interviews under duress, some of the, the behaviours that they were using, like show their British... Um, uh, their union jack on their sleeve to the camera and, all, and trying to show their injuries onto the camera as well just kind of like get whoever was watching the videos at home to know that you know they were doing this under duress and all those kind of little subtle things that if you hadn't gone through the training you would never know to do so yeah everyone yeah. had to do it and it was a it was a prerequisite for going to theatre you couldn't go to theatre if you hadn't done that. And what gunnery training did you do? Because on the Chinook in Afghanistan, right, you had what uh, you had the GPMG or M60 or and, and a chain gun. I can't remember the arm. We had an M60 on the ramp, which is essentially the weapon they used in the Vietnam War. It was a bungee on the side of Hueys in the Vietnam War, so it's a bloody old gun, but it's pretty trusty. I used to call it old trusty. And then at the front, we had on the left and right hand side of the aircraft, we had a minigun M134, which is made by Dylan, and it fires 3,000 rounds a minute, which is a lot of rounds a minute. Um, so even if you didn't get your tracer on on the first squeeze, it wasn't hard to walk your tracer on with that thing. But I was a gunning instructor, so, you know, we would we would work the guys up before we went out to theatre. And the thing about, you know, those weapons is that they're obviously designed to defend the aircraft. We're not an attack helicopter, and we, we don't have those guns entrusted to our, our command to go and just hose down Taliban. That is not what they were there for. Um, we had card alpha was the rules of engagement um, in Afghan at the start and at the end uh, in the middle it escalated to a thing called 49 alpha which was essentially where you've got a little bit more freedom of maneuver and any anyone north of highway one wearing a black turban uh, was considered Taliban and you were within the rules of engagement to open up and shoot them How, and some people did don't get me wrong some people did and did it completely legally but I was always of the belief that if I pull that trigger I've got to live with the consequences for the rest of my life so I almost had like an inbuilt chip of like, if it's him or me, it's him. You know, when I get to the moment where I know if I don't pull this trigger now, 
someone's going to shoot us and we're going to you know potentially lose an aircraft then that's when and only then I would have pulled the trigger but yeah we train a lot in terms of overshoot kind of profiles and stuff like that on the ranges around the UK and out in California because I don't think once in my life I've ever been shot at when it's been an appropriate time it's always at the most inconvenient time you're either about to land or you're about to take off or you're on the landing site which is extremely hard because you can't bring the guns to bear on the landing site because obviously you've got limits so you can't shoot the end of the rotor blades off which means if you're on the ground, it's extremely hard to shoot back with a minigun. So it's almost better that you're airborne, but um, you're never flying straight and level when you get a shot at, because as soon as you call contact, the pilot starts to maneuver. So you're now trying to manhandle this gun that weighs 57 kgs in the airflow onto a target. So um, that's what we train the, the younger guys to do. It must be quite difficult to control with that weight. And is it stabilized in any way, or is it just on a... No, it's just on a, on a, a an arm bolted to the the aircraft so I mean it weighs like it is heavy and I have to use my entire body to kind of push it because the airflow if you're flying at 120 knots the airflow pushes the barrels back into the six o'clock well the sort of five o'clock of the airframe so you've to kind of got to push yourself the opposite way against the the handle grip to kind of get it bring it to bear so it's um it's a it's a skill after Iraq you you deployed to Afghanistan we've touched a a little bit on that what how did you find the the difference in theatres when you went to Afghanistan so, yeah, like I said about Iraq, it was kind of very playgroundy. You know, there was a bar in Iraq and we could drink on a night time. We could have you know, two tins of beer. We always had more. But um, when you got to Afghanistan, there was no drinking. It was um, big boy school, um, no drinking. And initially we were based out of Kandahar. Uh, the whole Chinook force was because Bastion didn't exist. And Bastion was essentially just a barbed wire fence in the middle of the desert, uh, about an hour's flying west of Kandahar. So we... We're pretty. The whole Chinook force were pretty much instrumental in underslinging and putting internally all the all the kit that built Bastion. So we nearly every day we would put, you know, we would load the aircraft up at Kandahar and we would have, well, it was like a bad game of Jenga. You put the ramp down and it'd be like um step ladder, cement mixer, cable drum full of cables, bricks, you name it, and it was all going towards Bastion. So we would undersling all that stuff in, and then we had one crew at Bastion holding Mert. Because we had a couple, you know, we had British boots on the ground, but they were again only in um, Goresh and Lashkagar and a base up in the north of Helmand called Kajaki at the top of the river. Okay, sorry, Liz, can you just explain to listeners who might not know what MERT was? Yeah, so MERT was the medical emergency response team. So essentially the flying ambulance, which any BBC News programme you maybe have seen over the, the time that we were in Herrick, it was mostly footage of the MERT. Um, and we would hold standby uh, a response time of 15 minutes during the day and 30 minutes at night time to go and get any British soldier and actually any Afghan local. And at one point we even got tasked during my time on MERT to go and pick up a Taliban who had been involved in it, troops in contact with our own British troops, which is pretty like morally quite hard, but you know, we got tasked to go and do it. When that's the response times, it never took us that long to get airborne. I think my fastest time was, you know, under five minutes. Um, you would go from the dead of night to being on the aircraft, arming up, going over the fence uh, to find yourself flying into a hot landing site 10 minutes later which in itself, you know, is one of those things we, I don't think you realise the cumulative effect of that until years later, of that completely, you know, asleep in your bed to suddenly getting absolutely shot at 10 minutes later. But that cumulative effect, it does it does ingrain itself on you. But yeah, so, so Afghan started slowly. It was a slow burner. And within about three years, British forces started to push up the Helmand Valley. So we put FOBs up the Helmand Valley, which is forward operating base. So you had Camp Bastion as the main base. All these little fobs started to pop up up the Helmand Valley to kind of gain ground back. 
And it stands to reason that the more British troops you have on the ground, then the more trouble there's going to be, the more bullets are going to fly and the more IEDs you'll get found. And from about 07, 08 onwards, Mert started getting really busy. And um, I mean, my busiest day on Mert, we had 14 shouts back to back in the day. So we'd be bringing casualties in, putting landing at Camp Bastion at Nightingale, which is the HLS there offloading the casualties and going back out for more it was it was pretty busy and you know that's I'm not unique in that respect you know a lot of people had days like that and then the other thing we would do the other framework tasking was just moving those troops around the fobs relieving them with new troops taking in their ammunition their water all the resupplies and that's why I loved about the Chinook Force is that every day we made a difference to those guys you know whether or not it was taking in their ammunition and the water or if it was taking in blueies from home when we put the ramp down we made a difference to those guys on the ground that day. And, you know, that goes all the way much from delivering a letter from mum to recovering them when they've been blown up. You know, we made a difference. So it was quite privileged to be involved in that campaign. Can you just explain a bit more detail, uh, Liz, about the Mert teams? Because explain the sort of setup within a Mert, because it's quite interesting, I think. And it's uh, it's more or less a flying, you said ambulance, but in some respects, it's, like a, it's a flying surgical ward. So could you just explain the makeup of a Mert, just so... Listeners get a better idea. Yeah, absolutely. So it's always one crew on standby and a, and a standby crew and a standby aircraft. So you've essentially got now always a fallback option for the MERT. Um, it was taken with the highest priority. It was the highest priority task that we held in theatre. And the MERT gang I said, made, was made up of the four crew of the Chinook. We would stay in one tent. Then in the next tent along had the, the medics in it, which and the medics consisted of. Uh, a combat medic, an anaesthetist, a doctor, and then another medic. So about four, four of those guys. And then the next tent along had the force protection. And we'd have usually six force protection, which would be whatever regiment were in theatre at the time and allocated it. So what would happen is we'd sit around watching Game of Thrones or whatever was the, the box set at the time in our little tent. You know, you couldn't go far from the tent because you were on that response time. So, you know, no gym here. You know, we're not talking, you don't go to the gym, you don't go to the internet. You are just bungeed to that tent. And in the corner of the tent, we had a field phone, like a green, really old school field phone. So if one of the troops in Helmand up the valley or wherever got injured, and that could be anything from, you know, IED strike to troops in contact or whatever, or sometimes it was really benign injuries or, you know, a driving incident, but it was still, you know, considered an injury. They would send through a thing called a nine liner um, that would go back to Bastion HQ. And a nine liner is a really clear reporting format with nine lines, obviously, and it covers the grid, the call sign, uh, mechanism of injury, what the injury is, and the injuries were categorised in a, a T system. So T1 was the worst injuries you could get. So this person needs recovered now. They've got less than an hour to live. T3 was walking wounded, and then T2 was somewhere in between. So pretty pearly, but, you know, you've still got to get there. Um, and then T4 was someone who who died. So we would get that the nine liner through. It would, sorry, it would go to Bastion HQ. It would then get phoned through to the back phone. So we would be sat there watching a box set. The phone would go, and we would pick it up, get the nine liner details, and sprint out to the aircraft. Um, and the phone would go in each of the tents. So whenever you heard the phone go in our tent, we'd get called first, and then you'd hear it get rippled along the other tents. The engineers were at the end, and they would get the phone call as well. They'd ring a bell. So almost like back to like Battle of Britain type stuff, they'd ring a bell. Everyone would just sprint out to the aircraft, and we would get the thing spun up as quick as we could. So it was basically like complete organized chaos. You would have the engineers taking off any covers that were on there, but most of the time it had already been prepped. The medics would be putting on their headsets and, and getting needles prepped and all the, all the cannulars ready and 
oxygen or whatever they needed because they would have got the same information as us. So every injury was different. So they'd be prepping what they could. Uh, We'd be spinning the aircraft up and then the force protection guys would get in their body armor, et cetera. And then we'd lift and go. And sometimes on a nine liner, you would just get a grid and a call sign. Uh, You didn't have any more information than that. Sometimes what you would get would be a mix of T3s, T2s, T1s. Sometimes it would be a T2, but on the way it would become a T1 because the injuries had got worse. And very often it was just the confusion of the battlefield. And certainly whenever, you know, these things don't happen by accident, it's usually because somebody's being contacted by the enemy. So en route, things could change quite quickly. So we would get all that information on the radio as the crewman. Uh, we'd be on the attack radio. So essentially at one point we would switch from Bastion HQ over to the actual troops on the ground on the attack net. And they'd give us the most up-to-date information. Um, I mean, sometimes you could actually hear them. They'd be running to the ex- the um, extraction site and they were running whilst talking on the radio, whilst carrying stretchers. So you could hear the chaos going on. Uh, we'd then land, put the ramp down. Combat medic would run out with the force protection guys. They'd give all-round protection around the aircraft and we would then get the casualties loaded on board. So um, if we knew it was a mass casualty situation, we'd pull, pull up all the seats in the back of the aircraft and just get as many stretchers on as we could. As soon as that was done, get everyone back on board, which in itself could be quite confusing because you've got to count everyone back on. And because you've got all different amounts of casualties, sometimes you're just trying to, and you've got the guys who've been carrying the stretchers on still on the back with the weapons and whatnot that they're handing over. So it's complete chaos. You need to make sure you've got exactly the right amount of people back on the aircraft and then lift and head back to Bastion. And it was, we always used to ask the medics if they wanted high and smooth because if it's a head injury generally they wanted to go quite smoothly back to bastion but that's a little bit slower because you have to climb and descend or did they just want to go straight line fast as you can straight there which was a bit lumpier uh, tactically obviously you're more likely to have to maneuver but for some of the injuries they just needed to get back as soon as as soon as you could and then we'd land at nightingale hospital um site at bastion and be met by the firefighters there who were the, uh, they used to help carry the casualties off the back of the aircraft and, and load them into the stretchers. Um, and then off they, they would go into the, uh, into the hospital. And then it was reset, go again, or go back to watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> and we never used to chase it up. We used to be very good at packaging it up as an event, you know, considering the people that we flew back just as very precious cargo. But we knew it would be quite detrimental to then go and follow some of those stories up because not everyone made it, obviously. Um, some did, some didn't. Um, and certainly if anyone died subsequently because their injuries, op minimised would be called around Camp Bastion, which is where the um, all the internet gets switched off so that those jungle drums can't get a message back to a family without the proper channels. So all the internet gets switched off, the phone lines get switched off when op minimised was called. And it, was, it used to break your heart because you knew that you brought that casualty in and maybe half an hour, an hour later, up minimised would be called, and you just knew that they hadn't made it. You often heard all the tannoy there as well. Announcements asking for certain blood types, which always used yeah. to be a bit of a wake-up call. Yeah, we it? used to have a, well, up Van Paris was what we what we called on the radio if blood was required back at Bastion at Nightingale. So, um, you know, if the guys were losing blood quite badly in the aircraft, we'd make that call, and that would get passed back to the hospital so that they could have blood on standby. And actually, this is, a, you know, a really nice thing that came out of Afghanistan. I mean, the, the medics out there, at one point, it was the only place in the world where you could survive a non-survivable injury, which is just an amazing statistic and such a testament to our British medics and, and combat medics that we flew. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But whenever the Alton Towers incident happened a few years ago here back in the U.K., one of the medics on scene there, on scene there, had done mert out in Afghanistan with the British Army, and he called up Vampire across the radio net that day. And the hospital, I think it was Stoke, knew what that meant, and they prepped the blood ready for the incoming casualties from Alton or Alton Towers. So I think there's so many great things that that time in Afghanistan has brought back to the way the medical system here work. And, and certainly I think they're at the forefront now of dealing with amputees and, and those kind of, you know, head injuries and stuff that, you know, it's, it's it never would have happened if it hadn't been for that theatre. Yeah, you see, well, we, um, sorry, we, go on. What, what was interesting about Bastion Hospital, not only did you have reservists who were NHS, but we also deployed NHS staff through the MOD civilian yeah. route. So we employed them directly in. They came in as MOD civilians and they did tours in Bastion, which people didn't realise. There were civilians with three days training yeah. for an operational theatre who were working in Camp yeah. Bastion in the trauma wards. And they were amazing. They were absolutely amazing individuals. And we were, because we did so many tours out there, we would bump into the same ones quite frequently. You know, it was the same old faces. Yeah. be like, oh, back again for more. And we developed a really close close relationship with the MERT, so much so that they, the MERT club like was spun up last year and it's essentially you know for anyone who served out there on on that particular task and they walked they marched at the cenotaph last year for the first time which i'd been invited along to go to um i've always wanted a march at the cenotaph it's been an absolute bucket list and i was so lucky to be invited along and there's a lot of security clearances you've got to do just to get there and then four days beforehand had a huge ptsd meltdown and had to pull out and couldn't go and I was gutted. And when I did pull out, um, one of the girls who who was running the whole thing said there were seven people had done the same that week because they just couldn't face it. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's definitely left a lasting, you know, mark on a lot of people. But I am walking this Sunday. Uh, so it'll be the first time I'm going and I'll be amongst friends and old colleagues. So it'll be good. The other side of the medicine as well, I mean, it takes walls to advanced medicine by almost decades in some respects because you look at ambulance crews now they all carry combat application tourniquets yeah. like, even though they're yellow not black they have the same pressure dressings that have got the anticoagulants or the sorry the coagulants in the, the dressings so yeah what does advance even though it's terrible as it is it does advance life-saving techniques yeah I'm, uh, i met so, a pacifist recently who's you know um, Sheila Hancock, actually, I was at Yeovil Book Festival talking about my book, and I remember the whole day feeling like an imposter. I was like, I'm not an author, I'm just a crewman. <laughs> and I got talking to her in the green room, and she was a pacifist, and, she, and we were sort of having a heated debate, shall we say, about um, about war, because she doesn't believe in it. And she said, you know, that we didn't achieve anything in Afghanistan. And, and that's a question I get asked very frequently, especially whenever it, you know, fell to the Taliban. 
last year. And I think we did achieve something. You know, we if we got one young Afghan girl the chance to grow up and go to university and have a voice and leave the country, then we achieved something. If we got, you know, some young Afghan boys to be able to play with their kites for a few years, then then we did do something. And, and ultimately, the thing about war, and I wrote a piece about this recently, is that it teaches you how to love. You know, I've seen so many guys lose their colleagues at their feet on the back of my, my aircraft. And, you know, that's just pure love. That And you, it, unless you're really passionate about something and you love something, you're not going to fight for it. And those brothers in arms that you see out in Herrick, you know, that were really fighting for each other. And it was always, you know, I know it's controversial because obviously our queen passed away recently, but most of the lads I know didn't go for queen and country. They went because for their brothers left and right of them, they went to fight for their colleagues. And that's certainly what my driver was because if I hadn't gone to war, somebody else would have had to go in my place and somebody else would have had to take the risk and, and potentially a bullet that had my name on it. So I always went for that reason, you know, and to support my colleagues in that respect. And I'm pretty sure a lot of the veterans went because, you know, it's for the guys left and right of them. And, and yeah, war teaches us how to love. It's, you know, it's a fact. I think I think you're right. I think people think old soldiers and get together and their old airmen get together to celebrate war. They don't. It's like we had a a thirtieth year memorial service for friends that were killed in Northern Ireland, uh, and I hadn't seen some of the guys there for thirty years. And they turned up not to celebrate what, uh, war, but they, to just make sure that these guys were remembered. Yeah. On the you know, and the and the and the parents turned up, and it meant so much to the families that yeah. Their sons were still remembered, and their colleagues were there, you know. So yeah, you're right. I totally agree with you. It's, um, the friendships you make in the forces, and the friendships you make in a war zone. I mean, I'm closest out of all my forces friends. I'm definitely closest with the guys I served with in the really bad times in Afghan, and yeah, that those friendships will last a lifetime. Les, you've already touched on my next question, really, but I just want to explore it in a bit more depth. So, on the books I've read about bomber command in World War Two. What those aircrew experienced was they were in a safe base and then in a minute they were flying into danger and then they were returning back to a safe location, having their bacon and eggs. It was quite a, a surreal and dislocating experience. Do you recognise that description? Yeah. Do you know, you, you're so not aware of it at the time. You're really not. Um, but you go from being completely, you know, you know, flatlining, watching, watching some box set to then suddenly being, like you say, in this hail of bullets. And and for the Chinook crews, because we were deployed so regularly, we would do three month tours, which meant that it would come around every year. And you were kind of out there getting shot at for three months, picking up dead bodies and torsos and, you know, seeing people die at your feet. And the next thing you were home for sort of essentially like six to nine months because you had, you know, an element of PT, P, uh, PDT and exercise and stuff in and around there. But essentially you'd be back in your own house for six to nine months before you went out again. And yeah, it was just, it became, in the early days, there was no such thing as decompression. The British Army only brought decompression, which was stopping at Cyprus for two days. Uh, they only brought that in from about 2010 onwards, um, which in itself was quite controversial because most of the lads at the end of three months, just once, and never mind end of six months, tours, just want to get on the plane and go home. But having done both, having done the finishing a merch out, getting on a TriStar, which was the, the air transporter in the day and coming straight back to the UK, I've seen how I reacted to that, which was pretty badly. I came back and had a complete meltdown one day in my, my brand new house that I just bought when I was away. And uh, was just, you know, yesterday I was at, you know, war and today I'm in Tesco's and people are stopping in front of me with their trolleys and I want to punch them. <laughs> or in an escalator, someone stops at the top of an escalator and suddenly I want to rip their head off. I'm like, 
not normal behavior. Did you do anything about that at the time? Because you, you obviously recognized it was not normal. No, in every way. Feel... I found that, you know, within a couple of days of being back, you get used to civvies getting in your way. <laughs> Sorry for any civvies listening to this, but that's the military ethos. You know, you've been in this very controlled environment where there are no... One thing that... I mean, I want to have my own kids, but one thing that really used to strike me was, you know, when you're away in theater, you don't have traffic. I mean, there's never any traffic when you're right, driving around Bastion. You don't have children. You know, you don't have a lot of just the other noises and things that go on in the world, like busy streets and people stopping at the top of escalators, people annoying you with trolleys and Tesco's. That doesn't happen. So all those normal things that happen on a day-to-day basis here in the UK are, you know, you, you take for granted when you're away at war, they're not happening. And um, war is quite a simple place. You know, you don't have to worry about, really, you really don't have to worry about a lot when you're there, apart from not getting shot at, <laughs> which sounds like, you know, quite a sweeping statement, but it's quite simple. Like life is quite simple. It's eat, sleep, fly, repeat, bit of downtime, go to the gym, read a book. And yeah, so, you know, you get into this little bubble and then suddenly your bubble bursts and you're back here in the UK and on all that other stuff to deal with. And um, I've seen lots of people have meltdowns because of that. And then when Cyprus did come in and we had two days to stop in, in Cyprus, uh, where you're allowed a couple of beers and you had a, a chat from the Padre and all that kind of stuff. As painful as it was at the time, nobody wanted to do it. It did, I think, help a few people because you kind of get everything you needed to out of your system. And then by the time you get home, you know, you can kind of settle back into normal life. You know, I've got a couple of colleagues who find it really hard to settle back into being a dad when they got back because their wives have become so used to looking after the baby on their own that suddenly they got back and they were doing it all wrong. Oh, you don't change the nappy like that. You don't do that. You know, oh, you're going to you're gonna wake them up if you do that. And suddenly they're in the way. And, they, you know, this is a lot. I've had a lot of guys feed that back to me, you know, said. Or don't do what I did. I came back home off tour and on my post-tour leave and decided to rearrange the kitchen because it wasn't logical enough. Uh-oh. And my wife, who had been on her own for months, put me in my place, let's yeah. just say that. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, but it's hard, as you said, it's hard for the, it's hard for your friends and family when you come back yeah. as well because you are different. You're changed. Yeah, and they, quite rightly so, you know, say I've been without, I've managed to survive without you for three months doing it just my way. So stop interfering with my routine, and they get their own little routine as well, which is half of their coping mechanism for being left on their own for three months. I think so. I mean, I was married to a forces guy as well, so we both were quite similar in that respect, which kind of worked, I guess. We were both quite aware of each other's routines, but I can imagine in a you know if you're married to civilians, it can be quite hard to settle back in again when you come back. So, Liz, why did you decide to leave the RAF? And what was the effect operations had on you as a person? So I um, I would never wanted to leave, is the honest answer. I was med-boarded out in 2019. And having had a life on Chinook helicopters, which is, like I mentioned a few times tonight, it's um, it's pretty brutal on the body. Um, and I passed 3,000 hours flying, which is a pretty hefty amount of flying. Um, really. And my neck had started to play up. It's like everything, I think, in life. You know, when you're carrying an injury, but you've got a job to do, you just kind of muscle on through it, don't you? And you're like, it's all right, I'll not worry about it yet. And I did that the whole through sort of the end of Herrick. And it was about 2016, 2017. Um, I was walking in from a, a sortie here in the UK, a flying sortie. And uh, my colleague said something behind me and I turned my entire body to answer him. And he was like, Liz, just go to the bloody physio. So I went to the physio with this neck injury or this neck problem and got grounded. And they did a little rehab, all that kind of jazz. It got a little bit better. And if I'm being honest, I kind of probably lied a little bit and said, oh, it's fine now. So just so I could get back flying. I went back flying again, did a tour in the Falklands and left the Falklands pretty much unable to move my entire upper spine. So I went through Headley Court, 
which was where the Centre of Excellence, essentially for anyone in the British military at the time with injuries. And what was really weird was when I was at Headley Court doing my spine course, there was only a couple of courses on and I was staying in the mess and it was really empty. And I mentioned it one day to one of the lads in the course and he'd been there during the heyday of the Herrick campaign. And there was a waiting list for rooms and for people at Headley Court. And for me, that just really brought it home that all of those empty rooms were literally jam-packed with guys, you know, guys with injuries from Herrick. Anyway, Headley Court couldn't really fix the injury and it turned out that I damaged two, two vertebrae in my spine irreparably just from being vibrated to death on the back of a tunic wearing a helmet and whatnot. So, um, and you know, you don't just sit with your helmet on, you're hanging underneath the belly of a helicopter through a hatch and you're rotating your head at funny angles and then you're chucking your night vision goggles on at night time and doing the same again. Mm. So it took a bit of a battering really. Um, but yeah, so I was med-discharged left in 2019 they offered me a desk job which I did for three months and then realized that I didn't join the RAF to fly a desk and every time I looked out the window and saw a chinook lifting off on its adventures to the day I just missed it so much so I thought well you know I was only 36 at the time 37 at the time and I thought I've got the chance now to have a whole different career and I'd I'd rather do that than me you know handcuffed to a desk for the rest of my life emptying the bins (laughs) so I I (laughs) took the med discharge and I left and what did you do when you left then? What, what was you looking at doing in civil street? So I really struggled, I guess, like most veterans. You come out really hard yeah. to put what you do in the military onto paper on a CV, isn't it? I just, I mean, how do you go where I can shoot a minigun? How does that translate into a, 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 a <laughs> That's never going to happen, is it? <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, and because all, I, all I'd ever known was flying and I couldn't fly anymore, you know, I couldn't even apply for roles on helicopters in civil street. So I find it really hard. I find the hardest challenge was to write my CV. And quite honestly, you know, anything to do with computer skills or a Microsoft spreadsheet brings me out in cold sweat. I'd rather get shot at any day of the week. So I found it really hard and I initially went to work for um, a disabled flying charity. I actually got introduced to them by accident through another veteran. Yeah. And they fly disabled people and veterans. Uh, they get grants from people like Boeing and stuff like that. And they have these wonderful scholarships where people, you know, mostly coming through Headley Court and the Help for Heroes schemes could come to the airability and learn how to fly, like get their PPLs. So that was amazing because I was doing the scholarships for them and it was a real sense of purpose, especially considering some of the guys coming through there were guys that I picked up in mm-hmm. Afghan. So it was a really nice end to that full circle. Did that for a bit. Like, like I say, most veterans probably find it quite difficult to settle somewhere. So I did that for a little while and then got offered a job back at Odium uh, operating the simulator there, the Chinook simulator. And I, I took it, I snapped it up because I thought, well, this is going to be just like being a crewman back at work. Well, to yeah, the truth, it yeah. really wasn't. I went back and I was now in civilian clothes. I was pressing buttons on a computer screen while my old colleagues came in, flew, and then went back to the squadrons. And it was like watching everything through a glass window, but wanting to be inside the glass. So I only did that for six months and then went back to airability because uh, I just loved it there so much. And yeah, they, they absolutely give me the sense of purpose back, but it's just... It's hard even to fit in, I think, with the banter when you're in Civvy Street. I'm quite lucky that airability and the disabled community on the whole, I have to say, are, I went into this completely with a different attitude. I went in thinking, you can't say that, you can't say this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, they were, their banter is brutal, worse than anything I ever got in the military. They are <laughs> And um, yeah, I felt really lucky to be scooped up by them. Going back a little bit on the transferable skills, we've talked about this on one of the other podcasts about those transferable skills, identifying them trying to put down on paper because 50% of what you know, absolutely useless. Yeah. 
And no one's it. Well, I did find obviously when I left as well. No one's interested in your bore stories no. either. They they just. I they just remember thinking, just at least give me an interview because there were so many things I applied for, mm. and my CV was crap. If I'm being honest, you know, because I just didn't know how to write it. And you know, there's all those people out there to help you, but everyone has got their own opinion on a CV. Honestly, it's like yeah. if you ever get stranded somewhere, just put your hand up and go. I need help writing a CV, and a thousand people will descend on you. But um, <laughs> but. It, yeah, loads of the time I just thought, just meet me, just at least give me a shot in an interview because then I can kind of, you know, you like to think most of us veterans actually, when you start talking about what you're passionate about, then you really light up, don't you? Yeah. And you see that yeah. you'll, it yeah. really doesn't matter what tasks someone who's been in the forces gets given, they'll find a way to make that task successful. Um, be by hooker by crook most of the time. So it's just putting it on paper is the hard bit. And I know what you're talking about, about looking through a glass window, because Kev and I both work for different organisations that took us to work in Iraq and Afghanistan as civilians as well. And it's a, and I, I bump into Kev every so often, and it was just surreal when you're watching people you know go away and doing what they're doing in the army, and you're sort of in the front row watching. The sidelines. The sidelines, yeah, front row sidelines. And, uh, you know, you do feel a bit of guilt at times, thinking, well, they're out there doing that, and I'm here doing this. But, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really strange uh, yeah. mindset to adjust to. Yeah, so I find, it, I find it quite hard, especially if I'm on the helicopter with, with a team going out to do something else, and I'm going to get dropped off somewhere else. Yeah. Are you like- are you allowed to tell Liz that story about when you get kicked off that Chinook? Oh, well, well I went over the omelette, didn't I? I jumped on with an omelette team because I needed a lift somewhere. I used to hitch lifts around because I, I was a single person floating around theatre doing my I knew role. Your type. So I, well, I used to hitch a lift. Well, I, used to pay, I used to pay in crates of juice yeah. to the guys on the ground at uh, Little Heathrow so they'd make sure they put me on a a flight somewhere and I didn't care who's flying it what country as long as I got on it I mean we arrived in Sangin they got off and went one way they pointed that way for the fob and I had to lie on the floor to try and find where the fob was because it's that dark I'm trying to find the silhouette of the Sangus so I could go knock on the door and say I've arrived oh, well. yeah it was good, that was a good we, used to get, we used to get loads of people <laughs> like that yeah hitchhikers around the galaxy <laughs> There's a guy I served with called Andy. I'm hoping to get him on the podcast at some point. I won't mention his second name, but he's in a few books. And he was in an ambush in Afghanistan and he hit an RPG, but the Taliban guy fired it so close that it didn't arm. But it took hit his arm and took his arm off the elbow, apart from one sin, bit of sinew that kept it flapping there. Anyway, running contact and... Uh, in this book, the, the Chinook crew, crewman is writing about the ramp goes down in the back of the Chinook, they've got the mert, they run out of a stretcher, and Andy refused to get on the stretcher. And he's like covered from head to toe in blood, and he, he walks up the back of the ramp. And this crewman said, uh, crew chief said, he had a fag in his mouth. And we all know, being military, you don't go on a military aircraft smoking. Yeah. But he said, I looked at him and thought, there's no way I'm telling him to put that fag out. <laughs> no. Yeah. Just... We had a few casualties like that. You know, there's, um, I remember one guy who'd been, he'd been shot, uh, well, not shot, but his shrapnel through his eye and he was blind, completely blind. And he refused to go on a stretcher and kind of made his way towards the ramp, trying to feel with his feet to get up on the ramp, up the two ramps. And it, uh, that hit me quite hard because it just suddenly occurred to me how, you know, disabling losing your sight is. More than anything, you know, yeah. it would mm. still walking and wouldn't get on a stretcher, but you know, I thought that'll impact him forever. That, yeah, well, that's what I hate that term life changing injury and well, that euphemism that's yeah. 
always trotted out. Yeah. When did you say decide to write your book, uh, Les, and and how did you go about it? Because I wouldn't know where to start. So, what was the process? And why? So there was a, a, I had a life-changing event between leaving the forces and writing the book, which was, um, I mean, life was really good when I left the forces, 20, uh, left in 2019, and 2019 was a great year. I was like, hey, off, you know, do I have to go to Afghanistan, can plan my life and, and party hard and had a great time. And then Boris Johnson locked us all down, didn't he, in 2020. And all my coping mechanisms that I'd use my time in the forces, like for all the trauma I'd seen and stuff, um, was the obvious things like keeping busy. We're all masters of that, aren't we? Whenever you've got something in your mind, it's just like, don't think about it. Just keep busy. Don't get in your own thoughts. And uh, and I used to go to the gym a lot. I used to, like most people, go and thrash out at the gym and run. I used to do a lot of running. And funny, the more trauma I saw over the years, I got quite good at running because I'd just run like Forrest Gump and then run a bit more, keep going. And when Boris locked us down and initially, you couldn't even go for 20 minutes outside. You know, it was like that we were allowed to walk or something weren't you around the block. And I lived on my own at this point, having gone through a messy divorce. So all of the coping mechanisms I had of keeping busy, seeing friends, you know, going to the gym couldn't do and as 2020 unfolded I became more and more unraveled um I got insomnia quite badly because I lost all of my routine I had no purpose in life anymore I had no reason to get up out of bed um and I just stopped loving all the things I used to enjoy doing like cycling and running and whatnot and I developed insomnia really badly and I knew that I was coming really unstuck when some of the evenings uh some of the nights I was awake looking up the back catalogue of the soldiers I picked up on March hadn't made it and kind of finding out whether, you know, did they have kids, were they married, you know, that, all that kind of stuff. And turning what was, was essentially a piece of freight into a backstory and a person. I knew at the time it was really dangerous behaviour, but I didn't say anything. Didn't want to be a burden on anyone and didn't want to let on that I was really coming unraveled. And then in August 2020, I woke up one day and was just you know, just wanted it all to end, just wanted the the busyness in my brain. I, you know, it wasn't like the voices to stop. I didn't have voices in my brain. I just had such a busy head. It just wouldn't shut up. So I ended up taking a huge overdose that night, 95 pills, and uh, don't really remember much after that. Um, woke up in uh, Basingstoke Hospital in high-intensity unit uh, two days later, incubated with a tube down my throat and had survived. Um, I didn't know how I got there. I didn't know who'd called an ambulance, didn't know anything really, and... Uh, it was only upon, and the irony was when I came around, I felt like I was drowning. I had this tube down my throat, couldn't breathe and panicked whenever my eyes opened. And I remember my instant feeling was don't, don't let me die. Like looking at these doctors' faces and thinking, don't let me die. Just don't let me die. Which was so in contrast to how I was 48 hours beforehand when all I wanted to do was die. And I think, you know, when you look at how your brain can play tricks on you when you're really suffering with PTSD and trauma, that for me, the day that I took the overdose was the most normal thing to do. My reasoned thought had gone out the window. I was emotionally detached from my body. I, I refer to it as like a day where I was watching my life through a movie. I had absolutely no control over my actions. But anyway, so I came around, um, eventually got out of hospital four days later and was reunited with my phone, which was back in my apartment from the night that I got picked up. And it turned out that I'd called the Samaritans for 13 seconds, and then I'd called 911. <laughs> Must have been watching too much Netflix during mm-hmm. lockdown. But I called 911 <laughs> instead of 999 at 10 to 1 in the morning. And it turns out that an ambulance crew um, found me. And uh, I spoke to them a few weeks later to thank them. And they said if I hadn't lived next to the hospital, I probably wouldn't have made it. So I was a very lucky girl. But coming out the back of that then... Uh, was the real journey you know that's I thought I thought the real low point of life would be you know attempting to kill myself and I came out of the hospital quite euphoric actually and thinking well it's not going to get any worse than that you know it's the low point in life isn't it 
and I was completely wrong that was just the lid to coming off everything and then I had this huge journey to put back into my head all the files that I'd thrown everywhere that day so I went through a lot of PTSD counseling um and I feel very lucky to be a veteran in that respect because I know that the civilian system is not as good but I was straight into a veteran system on the Monday morning and had lots of counseling the initial counselor I had I didn't really click with and I have to say my lesson so for anyone watching this who's gone through the same thing is you know if you're ever in front of a counselor and you just don't get people you know different shoes for different feet and all that jazz she just wasn't the right fit for me through no fault of her own so um I then moved on to a different counselor and she was brilliant just absolutely you know helped me decompress and pull everything out and then look at it read all the fact the important thing I think I found was all of those files that I'd thrown out that day, I had to read them and acknowledge the trauma on them instead of just scooping them up and putting them back in there. I had to read them, acknowledge the trauma that was involved in that and then file it away. And that took nearly two years. And in, in that time, I started writing a lot of poetry, which is like quite cathartic. And then one day just turned to kind of like, you know, day one, Liz's life day one. And that turned into three weeks later, the book. So it took me three weeks in total to write. And had no intention of it being published I sent it to I was actually out walking with my best mate who's a civvy and said jokingly I, I think I've written a book and she said that's amazing send me it so I sent her an email and she um said you should send this to some publishers because it's really good so I did and lo and behold a year later I've got a book on the shelves <laughs> so yeah and it's helped immensely you know writing stuff down really has helped you're the second author that's we had an American guy Chris Whitmore on who's US Marine Corps and he's quite a similar journey to you Rez that he started writing just to get his thoughts on paper and, and, and he said that helped as well so it's really interesting that you've both followed the same journey when you sent it to the publishers did they ask you to play around with it much or did they try and interfere in any way I was so lucky they didn't I was actually kept thinking have they actually read any of this because I said whenever I'd written the first draft of the book that kind of like just Liz's thoughts on paper it was about 35,000 words which isn't really that much in terms of a a book really so but I thought well that's the bit I want to get out so that's all the stuff I wanted to brain dump and sent it off to Pen and Sword and when they came back and said they want to publish your story I expected that I expected a lot of the swear words to be taken out all the military slang I mean there's loads of really non-PC stuff in there and I thought it was just going to be whitewashed. And it wasn't. They said, like, it's your book. It's your story. You write it as you want to write it. Uh, but it has to be bigger. You know, it's only 35,000 words. It's like it's a short novel. So, um, and I was like, that's not a problem. Like, literally, this is the tip of the icebergs of what I need to say on, on my story. So I spent about another couple of weeks just each chapter, taking each chapter and kind of adding in all the extra bits that I wanted to put in there. And then it goes to him from the editors quite a bit. And most of that is just things like, the stuff we do talk about is military, like MERT and NVGs, which is night vision goggles. You know, I put a lot of that in there and they said, could you explain what those are for the civilian readers? So most of it was just that and a bit of you know, grammar correcting, but they were so good. They just let me have completely free reign. And um, and yeah, I, I honestly couldn't believe it whenever it hit the streets. And they made pretty a pretty good cover as well. I'm pretty lucky that the picture on the front cover which is me behind the minigun, was taken by a colleague of mine in one of the, when we were actually taxiing out of uh, Bastion for a deliberate op one, one day. And he was in the hangar about 60 feet away. And I had no idea he was even taking that picture. I, I look like I'm grinning like a Cheshire cat, but I had no idea that Ben was in the hangar. <laughs> and uh, which kind of sums up my career, really. I was smiling most of the time because I was always having a good laugh. And, uh, and he took that snap and I've uh, had it for years and, and put it on the front cover of the book and pretty happy with it, I've got to say. So what's your advice then for budding authors? 
Well, don't do what I do and go through a completely traumatic experience and then try and have to put your life together. It's <laughs> totally wrong to have to start doing it. But um, I think be honest, you know, and everyone loves a really honest story. And I think if you just, uh, I mean, mine's very much in, in a chronological order, you know, from day one joining up and the, and the whole way through. And I think if, if you're just, I mean, humans are fascinating. I think we're all fascinating. And I especially think people who've been in the military are fascinating. But what most people have said about my book is it's different to the normal military books because it's not just about this, you know, one time getting shot at with bullets. It's about how I perceived my career and how, what I felt about my time at war. And I think that's where mm. if you're going to write a book, you know, anyone can nearly get hit by a car or a bullet or, you know, you know, lose family. But it's how you feel about that. And that's the bit where everyone's different. You know, the event is the same for many people. But it's how you perceive the event that's different. And I think that's where if you're going to you know, put thoughts on paper, that's quite a unique way to have a, a unique selling point, really. Before I move on to the last question, I think it's important. Where can people get your book? So I was really surprised, but Pen and Sword, the first run that they printed, it sold out in three weeks. So there was a bit of a delay for a while of people getting hold of it. But it's back out again at the minute and it's on the Pen and Sword website. It's probably the, the best place to order it from because it'll go, get straight to you or Amazon have got it back in stock again. And in my local Waterstones is based in Stoke and they've got signed copies because I went in at the weekend and signed all the copies in there, which was Again, like that classic imposter syndrome, especially when I was at Yeovil Book Festival a few weeks ago, I was like, I'm not a writer, I'm a crewman. And you know, I just don't think of myself in that respect. So, um, but yeah, that's where people, and I'm on Twitter now against my better judgment. I was like, I'm no, I don't really do social media, but I, I finally do Twitter and, uh, and Instagram. So, but I love, you know, if anyone's listening to this and wants to follow me, it's, I just love meeting people. I love chatting to people. So it's been really nice getting feedback about the book. And that's, I think the biggest lesson I've taken away from it is that, my story has not only some colleagues that I know and people I know really well have messaged me saying, oh, my God, Liz, I have been, you know, I was on a bridge one day and I was going to do this. And there's so many people I know who have been through similar stories and not talked about it. But there's also so many people who have connected with me who I've never met before. And just my opening up about their mental health or my mental health, sorry, and my journey has really prompted them either to look at the, what they're going through and think, you know, I'm probably in a similar boat. Um, and talk about it but also for anyone who has been touched by suicide because you know I make quite a clear point to this in the book is that nobody could have changed what I did that day I was I often refer to it as like being on a water slide and you're only going one way you know I couldn't get back up to the top that day I had mentally checked out of my life already that morning and even if Daniel Craig had come around for dinner that night he couldn't have changed what I did that you know that, that evening I was on a mission <laughs> Uh, like a robot and um and I think you know I'm lucky that I survived able to tell my family that and tell you know tell them how much I love them because that's all whenever I was on life support in hospital that's all they were questioning was why did we not say it what we have done you know is it our fault and all those questions that come out from anyone who's been affected by suicide I was lucky that I came around and I was able to tell them that there is nothing they could have done at that point but there is something that everyone can do which is just keep an eye on your mates and you know, we all as a veteran community know our, our mates the best. You know, someone who's always down the pub, but then suddenly stops going down the pub is as big an indicator as someone who is never down the pub and then is always in the pub or stops going to the gym. All those abnormal behaviours. And the reason I think why no one picked it up from me was because I we were in lockdown and I lived on my own. So the girl that was always at the gym, who suddenly wasn't going to the gym, no one could pick up on that for me and no one could tell that I wasn't going out running and all those abnormal behaviours were done in secret so now we're out of lockdown just keep an eye on your mates and 
you know, I think if you ask them if they're okay, we're classic at going, yeah, mate, I'm fine. I'm living the dream. We always say that, don't we? But ask them twice. Sometimes yeah. if you ask someone twice, it's just enough to tap the eggshell and break it. So, you know, hopefully those are lessons that people can take away from, from reading the book. Well, thanks for your really uh, honest discussion there, Les. It can't have been easy for you, and it's certainly not easy to listen to, but uh, the advice you're given is, is is pretty much similar to every other veteran we've had on here that's had PTSD and has, has had been close to the edge or gone over the edge like you yourself. So reach out and keep, keep an eye on each other, basically. Yeah. Last question, Les, which you'd be glad to know. You've been invited on quite a few media rounds and to literary festivals. What's that like and how are you being received? Uh, still feel like an imposter, if I'm being honest, and still can't quite believe it. Uh, Yeovil was good fun. I had a talk down at Yeovil, which is a lot of the ex-Navy, kind of Matt Lowe's and stuff like there, and helicopter recruitment in the audience, which is quite nice. Yeah, you, you've got a lot of, the, there was a lot of lovies there that day who are proper authors, and it was just <laughs> just me talking about my war stories. Um, I think I'll get used to it. It might take quite some time, really, to get into that whole, uh, you know, that feeling of being an author and coming back to the whole label thing and, and sense of purpose as you know military people we'd like to be able to describe our name and then what we do don't we like I was Liz the Chinook crewman for such a long time of my life and it's taken me a very long time to become Liz the something else and now I you know I am able to say my name is Liz and I'm an author you know it's not the only thing I do anymore I've still got a day job but it's nice to be able to have that label now and be able to oh, and I hate using the term labels, but we all do like them and we all do need one, I think, sometimes. Yeah. So um part of your identity, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, so it's been it's been quite cool. And I've done a couple of big signings, which again I'm absolutely astounded that somebody wants to queue up just just to see me and talk to me and me to sign their book. But I'm extremely flattered and been overwhelmed with the support if I'm being honest. So yeah, hopefully it continues. And it's out in America in about it's out in December in America and Europe. So Dylan and Boeing have quite um lovely of them to like sponsor it and kind of promote it out in america for me so um based on the fact that it's got a massive mini gun on the front page and it's on a, it's all about my love story about the chinook so you'd like to think it's important are you going to go out there <laughs> have you, have you, are you going to be able to go out there to promote it do you reckon if somebody else pays for my ticket then yes i'll be there <laughs> <laughs> you could take the women out of the ref so is there another book yeah are you thinking about another i book? have actually i've got a don't, don't have to share all the ideas so people have steered no, it. But, um, yeah, you think about yeah, another one. Yeah, so the book at the minute, my book is, is 17 chapters and um, I served in 18 squadron for the majority of my career and the majority of my time in Herrick. So the next book I'd love to do, their stories, basically 18 people from 18 squadron and, and let every, everyone's got a book in them. I'm convinced of that. It's just having the time to write it. So I'd love to be able to give 18 people from 18 squadron their chance to write what they perceived about Herrick. And like we spoke about earlier, everyone's got a different perception of war and they were all in the same theatre. We were all looking at the same thing, but all of their perceptions will have been different. Um, right from the, the you know squadron boss, who's probably main concern was taking 60 people out there and bringing 60 people home. You know, my main concern was very much rescuing the troops on the, on the battlefields and the engineers would have had a different focus again. But even people like the safety equipment guys who fixed our helmets, you know, the int guys, all the other people who are involved in that huge cog that makes the wheel turn, they all deserve a voice as well. So I really want to be able to kind of capture their stories as well. As usual, we'll finish off with Desert on the Ditz. So a big thank you to Liz for coming on this podcast. We need your choice of book, your film and luxury item. 
So what have you chosen? So uh, I had a long think about this. And I think I'm going to have to take a dictionary. I know it's a really boring answer, but at least if you're on a dictionary, you're going to learn <laughs> something when you're out there and you can probably reread it a million times and never get bored of it. And if I'm going to have a future career as an author, it's probably a good thing to have. So um, so that's the book. Um, and again, film-wise, I love Forrest Gump. Every time I watch that film, I learn something new about American history. And I cry again every time, despite I know what's coming. And uh, yeah, I just think it's an epic film. And luxury item. Well, I've got a dog. I got a little puppy back in April who has essentially turned my complete life around I, I could never have a dog when I was in the forces um for obvious reasons being away all the time so I got a pug called Mr Shelby in uh, in April and <laughs> after, after, picky yeah, blinders. after picky blinders and he has changed my world around you know he is just that unconditional love and just having a little stupid face staring at you when you come in the door every day especially when you live on your own it's just um I know so many veterans as well who getting a, a little four-legged friend has absolutely changed the world and and now I can't imagine my, my life without him. So, yeah, Mr. Mr. Shelby. They can be traitors, though. I remember, again, coming back right? from a tour. Oh, dogs can be traitors, mate. <laughs> I went away on a tour to, to Iraq, and I came back, and when I left, the dog wasn't allowed on the couch, right? When I came back, not only was he on the couch, he's on where I normally sat. So I, I said to him, get off the couch, and he just sort of growled at me. And my wife said, he's been here the last six months. He deserves that chair more than you do. <laughs> Harsh, harsh. Yeah, Mr. Shelby rules the roost around here now, I have to admit. He's, um, yeah, but, uh, and he is a trader. As soon as anyone else has got food, he's, he's off there and he loves that more than me. My choice is straddling our last guest, Zach from 75th Ranger Regiment, and uh, Liz, actually, because it's Black Hawk Down by Mark Bowden. Mm. Uh, so it's set during the Battle of Mogadishu. January 1981, militias overthrew the regime in uh, Somalia. United Nations go in, and then President Clinton decides to send in a task force in order to try and capture Adid, who is the, the warlord. And I'm quite sure a lot of people have seen the the film, Black Hawk Down. So basically, Task Force Ranger go in, comprised of Rangers, Delta Force, 24 Special Tactics Squadron Airmen, Navy SEAL Team 6, and the 160th SOAR Aviator Regiment, which is a special operations aviation regiment that support Delta Force and all the rest of it. Uh, this led to several Black Hawk helicopters being shot down in an extended bloody battle. And to me, it shows up the, the sort of, not the best and worst of helicopters, but, you know, they can be a battle-winning asset, but they can also be hugely vulnerable, as you've already described, Liz. Yeah. There's only thin bits of... Ten and some vital components keeping that airframe afloat. And once they go down, as you saw in Black Hawk Down, the aircrew are extremely vulnerable. And hence, going back to what you described, your training, doing the escape and evasion and having to be able to fight alongside ground troops as well. And that was pretty much brought to the fore in uh, Black Hawk Down. So it's highly recommended. So Kev, what's yours? Mine's a, a book called uh, Chicken Hawk. Funny enough, it's a helicopter. Yes, yeah, by Robert Mason. Yeah. I was going to pick uh, that. I know you wanted to pick this, but I'll just dive out there first. <laughs> anyway, Robert Mason, um, he, he talks about his experience. He, he, he gets called up and joins the uh, the forces for Vietnam War. He goes through helicopter training school, and it, it goes into great detail about helicopter training. I, at the end, I felt I could fly a helicopter, although I probably can't, just about drive a car. It talks about his deployment, the experiences during his 12-month deployment to Vietnam. And then his, his post experiences, when he gets back home and, and all that's going on there, 
He then starts writing a book, and then there's a backstory that I found out recently. Was um, when he was writing his book, he was also smuggling marijuana for Colombia, and then got caught and got arrested. So a third of his book was written. He sent it off to the publishers while he was waiting for his trial. Then when he was on bail, he was writing his book, and he had to try and get it all done before he got his five-year prison sentence, because once he went to prison, he couldn't uh, carry on writing. He got his book out. He went to prison for five years, got a little bit of time off for good behaviour. And it was a bestseller while he was in jail uh, um, during that period. But it's a fantastic book. I mean, it's not the typical Vietnam War book either. It uh, gives a total different stance on it, but it's well worth reading. I read it in the 80s and the 90s. We call it the Helicopter Bible. So anyone who goes through Shawbury, everyone's read Chicken Hawk. I think we all read it. another book called Low Level Hell, which is another Vietnam Huey book, and it's very good as well. You'll probably like it if you like Chicken Hawk. Ah, I see, see. All right, okay, I'll look at that. Okay. Cool. So, Les, thanks for coming on the uh, the podcast. It was great to have the first REF and our first female guest. Female. Our first yeah. Irish. And Irish I won't say well. that... But that is not the term you use when oh, I first yeah. talked to you about coming on the pod. Bob Trotter. <laughs> the first bog trotter. Whoa, 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 whoa. When I was that, that's Oh, Kev's, Kev's of Irish background as well, yeah. Liz. <laughs> oh, no, it's been a pleasure. So, yeah, thank you very much for having me. No, it's been great. Thank you very much. And I'll look forward to reading your book, Liz, because I've got it on order. It just uh, it was delayed getting to me. So I'll put your social media links and all the rest of it on, a, on the pod notes, Liz, so people can get your Instagram and all the other bits and pieces. And thanks again to all our listeners for the continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming in. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes as normal. You can find us all usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. And still stamps for Kev. Yes, uh, you can download us from iTunes and like the podcast. It would be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere you get your podcast from. And thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support to the series and offering technical help for his company, ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.